sad and horrific weekend in Israel. You know, it's not the purview of this program to discuss the Israeli-Palestine issue, but we do deal in natural resources here. And I will just say this, and hello and welcome to the Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli, soon to be in London, uh, leaving tomorrow for the Canadian Mining Symposium. We'll talk about that in a minute. But just on this subject, I just thought from a strategic point of view, from the point of view of the Palestinians, I don't understand the strategy from their perspective. I mean, the only strategy I can think of, if you put aside the Iranian motive, which perhaps, as many people have pointed out, including Jeffrey Christian in our upcoming interview, that perhaps Iran had a motive to separate any sort of detente between Saudi Arabia and Israel, which the U.S. was pushing. Apparently, according to, say, Jeffrey Christian and many others, this is not in Iran's favor. So this would have been, you know, geopolitically good news, what happened over the weekend for Iran. And they seem to be cheering it on, even still applauding what happened. But from the Palestinian perspective, I find it kind of bizarre, because if you go in and do a whole bunch of savage, outrageous acts, I mean, surely they don't think that they're going to win that battle in the long run with their, you know, even if it's 150,000 rockets, they surely don't actually believe they're going to win it. Unless, I mean, it's possible, you know, there is a religious extremism side to it, where maybe they do, or they don't mind dying in the cause it still makes me wonder, like, the only real pragmatic explanation to the strategy of what occurred over the weekend from the Palestinian perspective would be to do all of these outrageous acts, savage, barbaric acts, in order to provoke an overwhelming response on Gaza, which in turn may draw other countries who are sympathetic to Gaza into the fight in order to perhaps provoke a regional war. That is the only pragmatic strategy from my perspective that I can determine. If you have other thoughts on this, uh, feel free to leave a message in the comments, but otherwise I find it very difficult to understand other than perhaps a kind of fundamentalism of sorts where, you know, to be killed in this situation is to be martyred, and that's basically the end of the story. So I don't want to go too far on that. Again, that is not the purview of this program. But we do deal in natural resources, and there was an interesting story, uh, since that is our bailiwick over here, relating to those events over the weekend. And this is Bloomberg News via mining.com, fertilizer stocks jump with Israel conflict stoking supply concerns. And it says here, fertilizer makers jumped after Hamas surprise attack on Israel raised concerns over how the conflict could impact global supplies of nutrients used to grow crucial food crops. And I thought this was worth reading here because I have read a ton of articles, probably like yourself, on this conflict, it has the world's attention right now, this story. Yet I haven't seen actually anything about this until I went to mining.com. Continuing, Israel's port of Ashdod, just north of Gaza and a key hub for the country's potash fertilizer exports, is in emergency mode amid the deadly conflict. That's putting as much as 3% of global potash supply at possible risk. Ben Isaacson, a Scotiabank analyst, said in a note Monday, 3% sounds actually like a fair amount of potash. Further, if Iran, a critical nitrogen exporter in the region, is drawn into the conflict, Isaacson said prices of the nutrient needed for grain production could spike due to limited supply and potential premiums in benchmark Dutch TTF natural gas a commodity used to make nitrogen-based fertilizers. So fertilizer could be an issue out of this conflict. 
if Iran gets drawn in, I mean, you could also have an issue with nitrogen-based fertilizers here, it is saying, as a result of Dutch natural gas. One would imagine this would be a crisis for Europe in terms of natural gas. And, of course, if we have some big conflict, as many of you have probably already thought, if we have some big conflict involving Iran, the oil price could indeed spike. Now, markets are fairly sanguine right now on this, so not worrying too much. But, I mean, I don't know if that's too much comfort for us. We only need to think of February 2020 as markets still were continuing to grind higher relentlessly as there was word for weeks on end of a deadly killer virus spreading across the globe. And it wasn't until all of a sudden when the NHL and the NBA shut down, basically simultaneously, if I remember correctly, Germany came out and started to shut things down. That's when all of a sudden the markets tanked and they tanked fast. So again, my inner bear remains healthy, at least in the midterm. In the short term, again, we could just be in February 2020 or maybe things again. I'm not here to overly prognosticate. But to Jeffrey Christian's point, and I have a wonderful interview here, I just did it yesterday. So I was actually able to get Jeffrey Christian's take on what happened over the weekend. So this is a very fresh, uh, hot take, you might say, on how these horrible events may impact precious metals markets, the economic fallout that could occur, as well as I got Jeffrey Christian's view on how bonds are perhaps impacting the gold price, moving it lower as people get seduced over to high yields, a so-called risk-free rate of return in bonds, hence making gold less attractive. But as Jeffrey Christian points out, you know, gold and precious metals, but particularly gold, is really somewhere that people go as a safety from risk from risks. And when risk goes higher, gold becomes more attractive. So interesting dynamic there. And of course, Jeffrey Christian is quite bullish on gold in the mid to long term. He is quite bullish on another metal in the short term. I'll leave it to the interview for you to find that out. It is a wonderful interview. So very interesting dynamics here at work when we consider the implications on natural resources here of these geopolitical events. Speaking of which, we have a huge event coming up just in two days here on October 12th and 13th in London. The Canadian Mining Symposium is taking place. Again, I hop on a plane tomorrow and I arrive at my hotel down the street and I am looking forward to seeing everybody. It's gonna be a very busy two days. It is a full agenda. If you want to learn more about what's taking place there, just go to events.northernminer.com. If you have already signed up to attend, you can also click on more information. There is an agenda there that you can look at of the entire two days. It is going to be a a one-of-a-kind event and the flagship of the Northern Miner Symposiums. So I hope you got your ticket, and I hope to see you. Come say hi if you listen to the podcast. I'd love to hear from you. And otherwise, we will be delivering you wonderful news and interviews and videos on the website as they are produced in the coming days and weeks. So with that, a wonderful show ahead of you. If you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at Northern Miner and on Facebook, LinkedIn and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts and wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud. And with that, let's turn to Mike Spreadbro, Executive Co-Chairman at Novo Resources for this week's CEO Spotlight. Joining us today, I'm very pleased to welcome Mike Spreadbro, Executive Co-Chairman at Novo Resources to the Northern Miner Podcast for this week's CEO Spotlight. Mike, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Great to be here. It's great to have you. Australia sort of feels like a kind of cousin country in the mining industry 
So there's a lot of commonalities, but there are a lot of differences and a lot of Canadian listeners or even North American listeners or people around the world might not be familiar with Novo Resources. So could you start us out by just telling us a little bit about the company and what you guys are up to over in Australia? Yeah, good place to start. So Novo Resources, I think the first thing is we are TSX listed, which is a bit unusual for Australian company. But only three weeks ago, we listed on the ASX. So we can talk about that later. So we're now dual listed. Head office is in Western Australia in the capital there of Perth. So we are a gold explorer, um, very much a Greenfields gold explorer, looking obviously like everyone else for the next major discovery. Our big uh, focus is on the Pilbara. So that's 1,200 kilometres north of Perth. The Pilbara is normally known as iron ore country, but we have at the moment, about 10,000 square kilometres of ground in the Pilbara, and we're out there looking for that next big thing. We also have some tenements in Victoria, uh, which is, you know, southeast Australia, but they're not too far away from Fosterville, and a lot of people would know Fosterville is a very high-grade gold project owned by Gnico. So, big gold explorer. That's who we are. Okay, fascinating. And yeah, of course, the Pilbara, I mean, I think of Rio Tinto, as you say, uh, iron ore country over there. So you guys have found some gold or you are drilling for gold. Tell us what you're up to. What are the main projects that you guys have over there? Yeah, so we over a very uh, long period of time accumulated a very large ground position. And like most explorationists, we're doing, you know, the reconnaissance work. So some of our, um, you know, tenements, we give up and we relinquish. Others, we get into drilling and we look for success. So at the moment, our key drilling project is uh, called Nunnery. Nunnery is absolutely fantastic in terms of what we've seen on the surface. Our geos have worked up a 1.5, two kilometre strike length zone of extremely high grade uh, soils and rock chips. You know, we've seen grades of up to uh, 70 grams a tonne. So, you know, surface impression is absolutely fantastic. We've mapped some shear zones. So three weeks ago, we started drilling. So that's very much what we call a tier two project. You know, you do the first stage of drilling, you hope it's successful enough that you might, you know, move into a next stage and do a drill out. So that is our number one project that we're hitting really hard at the moment. And that's kind of part of the middle of our tenement package that we call the edge in a gold camp. Now you have two projects over in the Pilbara, right? Like you also have the Betcher project, which is also a gold project. Is that close by or is that a whole other project? Could you tell us about that? So Edge in a Gold Camp, we have about 80 kilometres of continuous tenement package. Nunnery that we just talked about is at the bottom, but at the top of that package is Besha. Besha is really interesting. We really did enough work to be confident of going drilling September last year. And up until about April, we drilled around about 50,000 metres of air core really looking through the very small amount of cover, 10 to 20 metres of cover, and sampling, you know, the basement rock, which is in this case mainly intrusion. So from that, we really built a picture across a very large area, 20 square kilometre area. We were seeing good impressions of grade, really good geochemistry. But what's really, really exciting for, I suppose, all of us here is that Besha project is adjacent to DeGray Mining and their Malina project. I don't know if people know too much about DeGray Mining. ASX listed, you know, their Malina project, they've just released the DFS. It has over 10 million ounces in resource. So we abut their tenements and we were seeing the same geochemistry as they reported. So that project got DeGray's interest. And so through them, we've actually now completed a joint venture. So DeGray are now accountable for exploration but they're spending $25 million within four years on that project. So you can do the maths, you know, $25 million for 50% of the project really is a great value for Novo shareholders and importantly um, gives Novo shareholders an upside. And DeGray also invested in the company and, and now have 10%. So that's, that's a huge project and they're drilling. So, you know, we like to say at the moment, we've got two drill rigs happening in the Pilbara, one at Nunnery, and on our behalf, the Grey's got one at Besher. And Besher is a really exciting project going forwards. Indeed, it's always a vote of confidence when you have another company join in. So tell us just quickly on DeGray, because maybe not everybody is familiar. What kind of company are they? 
Well, five years ago, they were very much like Novo. They were drilling about 30 kilometres north of our Besham project, saw the same type of system that we were starting to see, you know, gold indications. You're talking about you're looking for a very large system. So in this initial work from the surface, you're picking up 0.2s, 0.5s grams per tonne. doesn't sound much, but that led to them developing a whole project and as I said, they've expanded that to 10 million ounces with an average grade of around 1.5, 1.6 grams per tonne. So 10 million ounces, that's kind of huge. So they've done that over five years. Huge success. You know, they now have a market cap well over a billion dollars. And um, that's what we're trying to emulate in the Pilbara. They were really excited with the work that we've done. We like working with them, and I think it's a great share for the joint ventures. As I said, they've completed a DFS, which only came out this week on their Malina project. So that project they're talking about in production in 2026, producing over 500,000 ounces a year for well over 15 years. So hopefully the Novo shareholders will see that type of journey within Novo. It sounds pretty exciting. And I guess ultimately you, you think you have something similar over where you are. Is that the thesis? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, we saw early on that the intrusions that we were picking up with our air core drilling was very similar to what had been reported by DeGray. And importantly, the geochemistry was very, very similar. And obviously through DD, DeGray have uh, confirmed that, which is why they've been interested. So all the hallmarks are there, the same signatures that through this expenditure of $25 million by DeGray over four years, we might develop it into something exciting. So fantastic. It's a case where neurology is really uh, kind of extenuated and, and is really good for Novo shareholders. That may be my favorite geological term is neurology. It's funny also because it's true. Uh, there's something to be said for it. So these are, I assume, gold pure plays as well, just quickly on that. Yes, you know, DeGray is 100% gold. They uh, don't have any other ground other than this project that they have in the Pilbara. And they are very, you know, focused on kind of putting a basin strategy there. And, you know, we are similar, a pure gold play. With such a large tenement package, 10,000 square kilometres, you know, we do let our geo team and exploration team go looking for other commodities. But it's really our rationale that we look to monetize those for shareholders. So, we do have some pegmatites on our ground, which is obviously flavour of the month, and we've joint ventured those. Um, we've got some ground that is probably more perspective for base metals, and we're in the process of you know divesting those. But we believe a pure gold play still has a great potential for shareholders in even this kind of subdued market. We've seen with the grey and a whole lot of other gold exploration companies, if you are successful, the return to shareholders is fantastic. And I don't think gold's dead. I think without a doubt, we'll still need gold as a backbone for the wealth of the world. So I still think it's a good place to invest. So as far as the roadmap then, uh, Mike, uh, where are we then? So you've done some drilling on both these projects. They seem to be the main focus here. Where are we on the roadmap? What do we have to look forward to in the coming weeks, months and years? Yeah, so if you kind of imagine a triangle, the, you know, as we kind of call it, T1s to T3. So that T3, that reconnaissance stuff, people will see us continually work our ground that we kind of haven't even had a chance to get to. So a good example on that would be on the western part of our tenements. We've built up a tenement package over 100 kilometres long against the coast of Western Australia, against some really prospective shear structures that we like. So that's very early, immature uh, exploration that we will build up. That's Bala Bala. So that's what we call T3. So we'll work that up. We're looking for gold. No one's done that type of basin work in that area. So we'll keep doing that. And then tier two, we've talked about nunnery. People will see news flow from that. What we haven't talked about is over in Victoria in Belltopper, we are about to start 2,000 metres of diamond drilling. So we would see good news flow from Belltopper and Nunnery over the rest of this year and early next year. And that tier one project that's really been hit hard is the Besher project that's been done on behalf of DeGray. And we'll definitely see those results and report those. So there's a lot of news flow, well and truly over four to 5,000 metres of drilling over the next three months. So as we're wrapping up here, what is your message to investors? What is the opportunity with Novo Resources? 
I think it's really broken into three things. We have got an excellent exploration portfolio and package, and as you heard, some really great targets. Um, we don't shy away the, from the fact that we are an early stage greenfields exploration. So, you know, people need to like that part of the business, you know, where there can be high rewards, but there's high risk. The second thing is we have a great team. We've got an internationally experienced exploration team. They've worked all over the world chasing gold. And number three is, as an explorer, given the current markets, we're not too bad. We've got about 20 million Australian in the bank, which will keep us going until, you know, into 2024. And we've got an investment portfolio of around about 20 million Australians. So in this space, I think we're quite well positioned financially. So those three things, I think, add to the flavour of us as a good investment going forwards. It all sounds very promising. Mike Spreadbro, Executive Co-Chairman at Novo Resources, thank you for joining us on this week's CEO Spotlight. Thank you once again to Mike Spreadbro and Novo Resources for sponsoring this week's episode of the Northern Miner Podcast, turning to the website. This strike at Newmont's Penasquito Mine in Mexico has finally ended. And we have it here on the Northern Miner. This is Cecilia Jamazmi on northernminer.com. Strike at Newmont's Penasquito ends with 8% raise. I guess when you consider it in the context of the UAW, that wants 40% and is striking being offered 20%. I guess Newmont thought probably 8% is a wonderful deal. Workers at Penasquito... Mexico's largest gold mine accepted a proposal from operator Newmont late on Thursday, ending a four-month-long strike that cost the miner millions of dollars a day. Penasquito workers will receive an 8% pay increase for each shift, effective retroactively to August 1st, the union said in a statement. Each of the nearly 2,000 unionized workers will also get an equal share of the 152 million Mexican peso, or $11.3 million bonus, given by Newmont. So that seems like quite a bit of money. 11.3 million divided by 2,000. Let's just do... That's $5,650 US each. So in Mexico, that probably goes a pretty long way. The union has also demanded a 20% share of the mine's profit, larger than the 10% agreed in 2022. This dispute, the union said, will be decided by Mexico's tax agency while workers get 10% of profits for 2023, as long as the company sees a net income gain. Well, these workers sound like they're tough negotiators and are probably going to do pretty well. I mean, 10% of the profit and only 2,000 people there. So continuing on, Newmont's the world's largest gold producer, declared force majeure in June on the mine deliveries. It said in September the dispute was costing it nearly a million dollars a day in maintenance costs and $2.7 million per day in lost revenue. And this was a mine that was acquired in the merger with Gold Corp in 2019. So interesting, and finally, that four-month-long strike has ended. Continuing on, Barrick to invest $2 billion in Zambia copper mine expansion. Also, Cecilia Jamazmi on northernminer.com. Barrick Gold will invest almost $2 billion in an expansion of its Lumwana copper mine in Zambia. The company said on Wednesday, the project will increase Lumwana's process plant annual production to an estimated 240,000 tons of copper from the current 50 million tons per annum over a 36-year life of mine. The move is part of Barrick's wider plan to extend the life of mine to 2060 and help Zambia revive its copper industry, President and CEO Mark Brousseau said. And we have a quote, Barrick believes that its host countries are its key stakeholders, and that's partnering and that partnering with them creates sustainable value for both of us. So pretty interesting. So Brisso continues to pursue copper. And continuing on, Canadian Mint introduces bullion coin using Eleanor Gold. This is Marilyn Scales at northernminer.com. And good to see Marilyn reporting here. The Royal Canadian Mint's newest single mine, Gold Maple Leaf Coin, is entirely sourced from Newmont's Eleanor Mine in northern Quebec. The coin weighs one troy ounce and is 99.99% pure, with a face value of $50. The mint's first single source, Gold Maple Leaf Coin, was struck using gold from Agnico Eagle Mine's Meliadine Mine. And we have a quote here from Tom Palmer, Newmont President and CEO. 
Quote, as the world's recognized sustainability leader in gold mining, Newmont is honored to supply the gold for the Royal Canadian Mint's pure gold maple leaf single source coin from our Eleanor mine in Quebec. Our employees at Eleanor and across the globe take great pride in demonstrating our stated purpose to create value and improve lives through sustainable and responsible mining. And it all begins with our people working safely and with integrity every single day. So that is a cool story. And continuing on, we have a story from Bloomberg News via mining.com. Out of favor gold attractive as risks mount, Nico Asset Management says. Gold's recent tumble has made it more attractive in an environment in which elevated interest rates boost the odds of unexpected market ructions, according to Nico Asset Management. The retracement has pushed some of the froth out of the market, and it's prudent to own some of the precious metal, according to Robert Sampson, a global head of multi-asset at Nico Asset Management, who has about $1.5 million across two mandates domiciled in Japan and Singapore. There's a, quote, decent chunk, end quote, of gold at around 6 to 8% of the Japanese portfolio, which has benefited from the yen's weakness, he said. Gold has been driven lower in recent months as the U.S. Federal Reserve hiked interest rates to quell inflation, with investors absorbing the message from policymakers that borrowing costs are likely to be higher for longer. That's aided the U.S. dollar and fed a dramatic surge in benchmark 10-year Treasury yields, cutting bullion's allure. Against that backdrop, holdings in gold-backed exchange-traded funds have hit the lowest in more than three years. We don't have the speculative juice here, which means we're relatively at fair value, Samson said in an interview. Quote, it's a funny macro world, which makes gold not such a bad place to be, particularly since no one's really terribly interested. That's usually the time you want to have some. End quote. And he continues, every day that we sit here with rates as high as they are, as quickly as they got there, with real rates particularly high, the stress of the system, that's a big part of why we see it as a protective asset. So it's a weird dynamic and an uncomfortable one. So interesting over there. So gold looking attractive. Meanwhile, Bloomberg put out this article, and I just want to touch on it. Metals trader misery undercuts supercycle hype as losses pile up. And it has to be recognized, this supercycle narrative has not panned out. We were hearing it from Goldman Sachs for two or three years, and it hasn't panned out yet. The closest we came to it was after Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But since then, it's been pretty tepid. I believe they call it lukewarm in this story here. Let's just take a closer look. The world's metal traders are enduring one of their toughest periods in years, even as international race for minerals thrusts the industry into the geopolitical spotlight like never before. From top copper trader Trafigura Group to the largest metal specialist hedge fund, a who's who of powerful and high-profile names have lost money, cut staff, or suffered other setbacks in the past year. And this is what I wanted to highlight here. Uh, Concord Resources CEO Mark Hansen said, quote, it's dawning on people. They've talked themselves into a super cycle that isn't happening. The environment is the most complicated and tricky for metals trading that I've ever seen. So you always got to be careful of these sure bets. And it doesn't mean there won't be a super cycle. I still suspect there will be, but, you know, maybe I'm just holding on to the dream. <laughs> Probably like many metals bulls out there. Continuing on, China's grip on germanium gets challenged by new Congo plant. This is Bloomberg News via mining.com. A newly built plant in the Democratic Republic of Congo aims to produce 30% of the world's germanium. According to its owner, potentially easing China's dominance of the metal used in electronics and solar cells. China produces about 60% of germanium, according to the Critical Raw Materials Alliance. The Asian nation restricted exports of the metals in August amid an escalation of a tit-for-tat trade war on technology with the U.S. and Europe. So maybe Congo to the rescue there. Continuing on, BHP to focus on cost cuts, patient on M&A. So you see kind of a ongoing theme here, which is this super cycle is not happening yet. This is Reuters via mining.com. Global miner BHP is focused on cutting costs to drive growth while being patient on buying assets. Its chief development officer, Johan van Jarsfeld, said on Thursday in Melbourne, quote, this is a cyclical industry and you sometimes are going to have to wait for 10 years or maybe more to get the right opportunity at the right price, end quote. They continue to focus on nickel sulfides. 
which they find uh, very attractive to own because conversion costs to higher purities are cheaper than with laterites, despite a steady decline in nickel production costs in Indonesia, the world's top supplier of nickel from laterite. And we have a quote from Van Yarsfeld here. Quote, there's been a lot of price volatility referring to nickel, and I think there's been more coming out of Indonesia than I think a lot of folks expected. As we sit here today, we haven't changed our view on nickel. So I think this kind of represents a lot of the view of the market, which is it's still bullish, but but nothing's really happened yet other than what we saw following the Ukraine war. You know, uranium keeps moving up here and we're seeing a small M&A here. Denison offers up to $15 million to Athabasca Explorer F3 Uranium. This is Jackson Chen on northernminer.com. F3 Uranium has received a $15 million strategic investment from Denison Mines to support the advancement of its Patterson Lake North property in Saskatchewan. And we have a quote here from F3 CEO Dev Randawa, former uh, CEO of Fission. Quote, we are very pleased to welcome Denison as a strategic investor in the company. Denison is a uranium industry leader possessing a diverse array of both early and advanced stage assets in the Athabasca Basin. So interesting deal-making there. So those are your news stories. Now, let's take a look at metal prices. Turning to metal prices, let's just take a quick look at the bond market to see what is going on there. The U.S. 10-year Treasury bond is yielding 4.7%. That is 0.02% lower than last week. So more or less even on the week. The U.K. 10-year gilt has dropped 0.05% to 4.51%. So a slightly lower yield on the 10-year gilt, and the Italian 10-year bond is yielding 4.85%. That is 0.03% lower than last week. So still nearly 5% there, but just edging a little lower off last week. So on the week, not much movement, although drama in between. Turning to precious metals, gold is trading at $1,867.30 per ounce. That is $16 higher than last week. Silver is trading at $21.89 per ounce. That is $0.67 higher than last week. Platinum is trading at $886.88 per ounce. That is $8 higher than last week. And palladium is trading at $1,138.38 per ounce. That is $68 lower than last week. So palladium dropping while platinum, gold, and silver move higher. Turning to industrial metals, copper is trading at $3.66 per pound. That is two cents higher than last week. Iron ore is trading at $118.18 per metric ton. That is $2 lower than last week. Aluminum is trading four cents lower at $1.02 per pound. Lead is a penny lower at 99 cents per pound. Nickel continues to fall at $8.31 per pound. That is five cents lower than last week. Tin is higher at $11.18 per pound. That is 32 cents higher than last week. Cobalt is unchanged at $15.16 per pound. Lithium is three cents higher at $22.84 per kilogram. So meandering there at recent lows, and uranium continues to move higher at $72.75 per pound. The relentless climb continues here up $2.75 on the week, a relentless climb on our weekly price check here. And finally, zinc is trading at $1.14 per pound. That is four cents lower than last week. Zooming out, palladium a bit of a standout there going lower while precious metals edge higher. Overall, kind of a mix to neutral in the industrial metals with standouts really being uranium and maybe lithium being just lower 
staying at those lows. Apparently, China has very low lithium prices, which is helping drag down the entire cost of the market. One wonders to oneself, you know, is this kind of similar to what they did with rare earths? Is that their way of trying to protect their hold on the lithium market, make it unprofitable for everybody else to produce it? Interesting question. And those are your metal prices. Coming up, I'm very pleased to welcome back Jeffrey Christian, managing partner at CPM Group, back to the Northern Miner podcast. And we have a very fascinating discussion on the situation in the Middle East in the context of the precious metals markets, as well as the impact of the bond market on the gold price and also what is happening in China. So a wonderful in-depth interview with Jeffrey Christian. I hope you enjoy it and I will see you on the other side. Joining us today, I am very pleased to welcome back to the show, Jeffrey Christian, managing partner at CPM Group to the Northern Miner podcast. Jeffrey, how are you doing? I'm pretty good, you know, a little bit overworked, but it's been a very interesting time in these markets, yeah? Indeed, I mean, that's exactly where I wanted to go. And thank you for making the time for us, uh, considering how busy you are. And we had that huge news out of the Middle East this weekend, as we know, between Hamas and Israel. And so just from a precious metals perspective, does this news out of the Middle East mean anything for precious metals? When you see a story like this, how do you understand it within the context, within the purview of the precious metals markets? Well, yeah. First off, you know, one of the things that we always say is people say, well, what's going to cause the next recession or what's going to cause gold prices to rise? What our pat answer is, it's usually a combination of factors. There's usually not one there's a trigger maybe or an occasion as a historian would say, but it's usually a, an amalgamation of things. And what we've been talking about recently is the fact that you have a whole lot of issues, political issues, domestic political issues in virtually every country, international issues, a breakdown of international cooperation, or rather a reduction of U.S. hegemonic powers, depending on whether you live in the United States or not. You know, you have political issues, you have financial market stability issues, you have regulatory issues, which are actually having unforeseen, anticipated, but undesirable consequences on the efficiency of financial markets. And then you have a lot of economic issues and you have all of these factors and they've gotten bigger and more important and more critical over time. And the question is, which set of factors combine? So when you look at the Middle East and you say, okay, well, what really happened here? Hamas has attacked Israel and they have targeted civilians. You know, hundreds of people shot in the back at this music festival and hundreds of hostages uh, taken. And and Hamas is financed by Iran. The United States was trying to broker peace, diplomatic relations between Israel and Saudi Arabia. That is in Iran's worst interest. So the idea that Iran has encouraged Hamas to become more militant in this way at this time makes 100 percent chance. So you look at the actual events of the last 72 hours, and you can say this in and of itself may not have a dramatic effect on gold prices. Now, you did see gold prices shoot up this morning, and then they've come back off somewhat. Silver shot up dramatically, too, and has given up virtually all of its gains as we speak. And then you've seen other financial markets react the same way. You know, oil prices had fallen from $92 last week to like $82 uh, this week by Friday of last week. And they, they're up like $5 now. So oil prices have risen sharply, but they haven't even regained what they lost last week. So the markets are sort of saying, okay, this in and of itself may not be problematic. If, however, it expands, and we saw signs on Sunday that Hezbollah was joining, if this thing ex expands, and it's not going to be resolved soon or, or quickly. Uh, it could have positive effect on investors' desire to own gold, driving the price up. And 
it's hard to say how it's going to shake out. You know, Israel does have the capacity to attack nuclear facilities in Iran. There are parts of the Israeli government that have been asking or begging or demanding that they do this for 20 some odd years, and they've been restrained by other parts of the Israeli government. The Israeli government was shaky in its coalition before this. Probably it stays now because it's on a war footing, but you would assume that there's going to be a reshuffling of the political deck in Israel once this is resolved. So a lot of more things are in play and there's a greater degree of uncertainty and risk. And what drives investors' interest in gold is uncertainty and risk. It might be inflation risks, it might be currency risks, it might be political risks, it might be personal risks, it might be financial banking, you know, my bank's stability risks, but it's uncertainty and risk that drives investments, man. And this is just another factor that has been added to a list that what we have, which is several, it's more than two dozen factors that we follow, you know. Now that said, putting it into a context and exhaling, in our morning meeting today, we were talking about it and I said, I think by Wednesday, what you're going to see is the markets are going to pivot toward US PPI, US CPI, the ongoing concerns about the bond market and what it means, and the dysfunctionality in the US government. And you know, a lot of people say, well, the, the House Republicans are dysfunctional, but the reality is that the entire administration and Congress is dysfunctional. And there are things that the administration could have done last week that it didn't. Uh, yeah, but there are things that the administration could have done for the last 70 years that it didn't. So I think that you've got uh, a world that is increasingly riskier, and this is just another factor there. I think that unless things really get hostile, you'll see market attentions pivot away from the Middle East back toward the bond market. Well, let's go right to the bond market then now, because uh, exactly, I mean, we've seen bond yields, I guess we could say they spiked. I always want to be careful about overstating things in your presence here, Jeff. Uh, but we have seen <laughs> bond yields, you know, rise dramatically, shall we say, relative to traditional movements. And here we see gold below $1,900. I see 1858 on CNBC here. Do you attribute the fall in gold to higher bond yields? Yes, partly uh, a large part of it has been a shift of investors' concerns away from recession to the idea of a soft landing. And part and parcel with that is the fact that you're seeing the financial markets. Financial markets have refused to listen to monetary authorities or believe them. And so for the last two years, the, U the U.S. Fed, the ECB and other central banks have been saying, look, inflation's a problem. We're going to have to raise interest rates. Uh, the period of zero interest rate policies from 2008 to 2021 is over. We will be raising rates. We're not going back to pre-2008 policies and levels. We're going into an entirely new era of interest rate policies and levels and what that means for the economy. And they've been saying this for almost two years now. And the markets kept refusing to believe it. So you kept hearing these pundits say, oh, the Fed's going to have to stop raising interest rates. They're going to have to lower interest rates. We're going to be moving into a recession. And the Fed kept saying, no, no, no. And then starting in August, I mean, there was like, I don't know, maybe they were put into class detention. Financial market pundits started saying, well, gee, maybe the Fed's been telling us the truth all along. And the economy is not in a recession. It might go into a recession next year, but it's not in a recession right now. And there's much more strength in the economy than we have been giving it credit for. And interest rates have been rising, but they're still very low. And they're probably going to rise a little bit more, but we're probably getting close to the peak. But even when they peak, they're not going to fall sharply. And maybe the Fed and the ECB and other monetary authorities have been A, doing a decent job, and B, getting it right, and C, telling us the truth. And we've just been too bullheaded to listen to them. And since August, you've seen this pivot in financial market attitudes toward interest rates. It's not that interest rate policy has changed. It's that the market has collectively, if you will, come to its senses to some extent. 
and taken a more realistic view of where we are economically and monetarily. And it's surprising because we've been saying for a long time, like 40 years, it's not monetary policy, it's fiscal policy. You got to watch the fiscal policy. And I was watching the news shows uh, Sunday morning in the United States, and somebody was saying, you know, everybody focuses on the Fed and monetary policy, but it's really fiscal policy that's the problem. And it is. And so you're starting to see people say, okay, I've been wrong for two years on the economy. What have I gotten wrong? Fascinating. And when you say fiscal policy, then being the problem in terms of inflation or like, are they spending too much or are they not spending enough? I I mean, that's hard to imagine. I mean, what is the problem in fiscal policy? (laughs) Well, fiscal policy has been wavering and it's been, yeah, they've been spending too much. There's probably been a gruesome misallocation of funds across governments. You know, some governments have focused on infrastructure. The U.S. government has focused on defense spending and and has neglected infrastructure investments. Those infrastructure investment uh, scarcity, it leads to increased economic inefficiency, which reduces the growth. So, you, you know, you'll have economists talk about the potential growth rate in the United States versus the actual growth rate. And the gap has widened because of a lack of infrastructure spending and a misallocation of funds. There are things you can do on the revenue side, as well as the cost side, that we could severely reduce the deficits that we're seeing. You know, and we're actually writing two pieces for our clients. One maybe goes out this week, which is our long-term economic outlook, uh, revisited and elaborated upon. And then one later in October, which is deficits, debt, and gold. And we put deficits first because people focus on the debt, but it's really the deficits that that matter. That's what you have to fix. The debt gets fixed if you fix the deficit. So there are a lot of issues out there, and it's misallocation of resources on a fiscal policy basis, not only in the United States government, but on a global basis, that really has been a major problem. And it's been a problem for decades. So you're not talking about reversing the policies of the most current administration in these governments. You're talking about major structural political changes that are necessary to restore us to a sustainable fiscal policy. Exactly like you're saying, I get the same sense that debt is becoming more of a focus right Mm -hmm. now. And it sounds like you have a long term outlook. I'm not going to ask you to reveal everything from your forecast, but I guess my simple question is, what are the implications then for markets and gold? I would think that, as you put it, a deficit problem is probably going to be a good news for gold. Yes. Yeah. All of this is, you know, unfortunately, yeah, we often find ourselves in the same position as arms dealers. Bad news for the world is good news for gold. And the reality is that when you look at debt and deficit problems and the intractability of, you know, there are easy solutions, but the political will is not there to do what needs to be done. And when you look at the seemingly intractable deficits and debt problems that the world is facing, investors increasingly get concerned and they turn to the dollar and they turn to gold. And, you know, it's funny because you talked about how low the gold price is. Gold price averaged $1,804 last year. Even if the price stays where it is now, even if the price goes down to 1820 which we have said is a possibility yet in October and November, you're still talking about a record gold price this year, far in excess of previous record gold prices. The gold price is very high. That's telling you that investors around the world, from China to North America to Europe to India, are buying gold. They may not be chasing the price higher. They may be value investors. And when the price gets to $2,050, earlier this year, they may say, I think I'll take a breather. But now that the price is $200 lower, they say, okay, this is a decent price given the increased uncertainties and risks that are increasingly apparent across the economy and the political system. That is actually also exactly where I wanted to go was with China. I mean, we continue to see reports that they are buying large amounts of gold there is a general sense, which me, I'm very curious to get your view on, because usually this is what I'd say a fairly simple interpretation, which often you 
will dismantle. But let's see that uh, China, let's say, is buying gold at the expense of U.S. treasuries. Why is China buying gold and does it relate at all to them maybe not buying as many U.S. treasuries? First off, you have to define what you mean by China, because there, let's say there are two Chinas. There is the People's Bank of China, the government, and then there is the Chinese population and economy. And the simple answer is both of them are buying a lot more gold. So you're seeing increased demand for gold within the Chinese economy from investors, from jewelry manufacturers, from industrial users. Uh, you know, and from institutional investors, you're seeing increased demand for gold within China this year. Having seen a very sharp decline in investment demand and jewelry demand last year, like a 74% decline from the first quarter of last year into the fourth quarter of last year. So there's a lot of gold that wasn't being bought last year in China, and some of it was being sold. And China has a policy, the gold in China stays in China. That's very important when you listen to Putin's pipe dream about a gold currency system for settling oil transactions, because China says, we'll pay you dollars, we'll pay you euros for your oil, but we're not going to give you our gold. Then there's the public government part. Now, the People's Bank of China was buying gold until July of 2019. They were buying gold mostly in the domestic market. And they were buying it at prices between $1,200 and $1,350. In July of 2019, the price went above $1,350. It went to $15 and then $16 and then $18 and then $2,000. And the People's Bank of China said, no, we're not buying at these prices. Last November, you saw 74% decline in domestic Chinese gold demand. A lot of gold building up in the Chinese market. And the gold price went from $2,040 in the first quarter of last year to $1,624 in November. And the Chinese government said, okay, it's not $1,350, but it's 20% lower than it was eight months ago. Let's start buying. So they bought 2 million ounces last year. They didn't buy 10 million ounces the way some promoters think or say. I don't think they think it. They, they say it. I think they understand they made a mistake, but they can't admit that. They bought 2 million ounces of the People's Bank last year, November and December, and then they've been buying consistently this year. And, you know, they bought the most recent data was for August, and they bought 930,000 ounces. And over the course of the year, they bought just under 5 million ounces of gold, the People's Bank of China, for monetary reserves. So they are adding to their reserves in a modest way, buying it mostly in the domestic market. While they're doing that, it's not a function of buying gold and dumping the dollars. They still have a net inflow of U.S. dollars every month for international trade settlement. They're net exporters, and 80% of their exports are paid for with U.S. dollars. So, okay, I need to buy oil. I'll pay for it with the U.S. dollars. So if you look at the U.S. dollar holdings of the People's Bank of China, they actually haven't fallen that much. You know, and there's no evidence that they're dumping the dollar. What they're doing is they're taking their current account inflows of dollars and converting it into gold and other currencies or paying for using it to pay for trade going forward. So the People's Bank is not dumping dollars. Now, you look at the U.S. Treasury securities markets, and you saw a period of time when there was like a trillion dollars of U.S. treasuries sold. You heard in the gold market, oh, foreign central banks are dumping the dollar and dumping treasuries. But if you break it down, you look at the treasury statistic, 70% of that, 700 billion of it was sold in the U.S. market by U.S. investors, institutions, corporations, and individual investors. The other 30% was sold overseas. And when you start breaking that down, and it's all bare, they're bearer bonds, so you don't really know who unless they report it. Central banks will report it. People's Bank of China has sold very few treasuries. Private investment groups within China sold maybe $100 billion. And a lot of U.S. corporations, investment funds, and individual wealthy individuals hold money in U.S. treasuries overseas. They were selling too. 
Now, why were they selling? Is it an anti-dollar move? No. These were treasuries that were earning 25 basis points and interest rates were rising. And the prices of those bonds and, and notes and, and bills were falling. So they were getting rid of low price bonds and bills, moving into cash, waiting for a sign that interest rates were either peaking or had peaked before re-establishing their treasury positions. And over the last several months, you've seen a net purchases of treasury bills again because the financial market, which was the big seller of treasuries, has come to the conclusion that we're at or close to the peak for interest rates on U.S. treasuries. So it's not a matter of governments dumping it, and it's not a matter of I'm dumping my dollars and buying gold. It's a matter of I'm waiting to get a higher interest rate on my dollars. I still like the dollar. In fact, if you look at the dollar exchange rate, I like it more than I used to relative to other currencies because the dollar has not collapsed. It's actually strengthened. But I also like gold because, as I said earlier, the two things you run to in times of uncertainty are the U.S. dollar and gold. So just a very brief follow-up then. So it sounds like they're holding on to basically what they have, let's say the People's Bank of China, if I understand you right. But are they buying as much as before? Are they buying any treasuries anymore from your understanding? And has that been substituted with gold, I guess is my question. Yeah. Uh, there. You know, My understanding is that the China is still running positive trade balances. So every month, currencies flow into China. And as I said, you know, 80% of it's probably U.S. dollars. Individual corporations and such in China tend to hold their money in yuan because that's the law. <laughs> you know? uh, so you are selling widgets to whatever country or cars or laptop computers or phones, and you get paid in dollars and you sell those dollars to the People's Bank of China in exchange for yuan. You, as a private entity in China, own yuan and your deposits. The People's Bank of China has dollars. And I think that if you look at it, you'll see that their foreign exchange holdings, mostly denominated in dollars, are rising every month. So that would suggest that they're holding on to dollars and they're not necessarily dumping it. Insofar as they're buying gold, and other currencies, they seem to be buying those other assets from their current account surpluses as opposed to their foreign exchange reserves. Interesting. Okay. So another quick follow-up on China then. We were hearing this story that basically you get more money for your gold in China than you would <laughs> in, say, you know, in the West. It sounds like recently this has started to decrease this premium that you're getting in China. First of all, I assume that that's correct. If it's not, uh, please help me out. And if premiums are in fact decreasing, what do you attribute that to? There are several things that are going on. First off, go back to my narrative about last year and this year. In 2022, there was this massive disinterest in gold. And the premiums in China relative to London or New York declined sharply. This year, there is a rekindling. It really started in like December of last year. There's been a rekindling of demand for gold in China from private investors, institutional investors, people wanting jewelry, people wanting investment products. And that has caused the demand for gold is rising and it's causing the Chinese price to rise. So one of the factors that you're seeing in the increase in prices is real demand. The second one is that you have to understand that the price that you're looking at is the Shanghai Gold Exchange price for gold versus the London bullion price. That's the general one. That's the one we use. And the Shanghai Gold Exchange is uh, different from, say, the COMEX in that it's professional exchange. So you have large corporations, large institutional investors, miners, refiners, uh, banks, non-bank financial institutions, 
active in the SGE. So it's sort of like a premium market. You don't have smaller investors because they're not allowed to trade there in the SGE. So it's a different kind of market. And the SGE price is somewhat different from what you would call the retail price in the rest of China. The third thing is that you had this situation where you know you've, you have had real economic problems in China. And again, one of the bubbles we like to pop is you know the Chinese economy is not collapsing. It's got issues, it's got problems, and it's got a communist government <laughs> that has tremendous levers that capitalist governments don't have. Uh, it, it has problems in real estate. It has problems in other sectors of the economy. You have seen a crackdown and a reduction of demand for goods from China, which is hurting some corporations, which is leading to layoffs and reduced employment. You have an enormous population that has migrated from being very poor subsistence farmers to living in an urban environment, working for large corporations, taking goods and services from people they don't know. And there's a great deal of anxiety about, hey, where does this go? Because, you know, early in my life, I was living in a village without electricity. How fast can we go back to that if everything goes wrong? So, you know, our view is the Chinese government has the capacity to fix these things and, and go forward. But what you've seen is that there has been big issues in the Chinese economy. And there are issues with, well, do I hoard gold, et cetera, et cetera. So the Chinese government in, I think it was in July, went to some of the regional banks and said, you may not import gold. We're trying to manage our foreign exchange flows, our, ca our current account flows better. And so as part of this policy, smaller banks stop importing gold. We're just going to let the big five banks import the gold. When that happened, the premium shot up very sharply. And I was just looking. I don't really remember the numbers off the top of my head. But you saw a very sharp increase in the SGE premium over London. And it got up over 50%. I think it was got up to like 75% wow. in, I believe, in August. Don't hold me to these levels and dates because it's not important enough for me to remember, you know. But then the government said, okay, that was a mistake. Go back. You can do this again. And the premium fell. And, you know, the last time I looked, the premium was something shy of 40%. So you had this big spike up because of that temporary pause in imports by smaller regional banks and provincial banks. But that regulation was reversed and half of the premium disappeared. Now, you still have a high premium, like 30, 35% premium, because the demand for gold in China remains strong. You know, but that's sort of the mechanics of it. Okay, so just for clarity then, when you say like a 30 to 35% premium, does that mean if gold's at like $1,800, in effect, it's $2,400? Or does that mean something else? Yeah. Except that they don't buy in dollars, they buy in yuan. I mean, one of right, the other just, factors, one of the other yeah. factors that I, I I failed to mention was the fact that the yuan was falling against the dollar. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, interesting. So I guess that would be a factor as well. Okay, fascinating. So just a couple of questions uh, as we wrap up here. What's the most important thing happening in the precious metals market that's not being discussed right now, in your view? <laughs> I think it's the the trends in investment demand outside of China. Actually, you know, it's funny because you hear a lot of talk about China and gold and the gold China, the Shanghai premium to London, but you don't hear really substantive discussion about what's going on within the Chinese uh, gold market. And you hear a lot of speculation about, you know, the BRICS thing. And it's, it's just, it's, it's two steps off to the left of reality. But I think the bigger issue that's not being really addressed is non-Chinese investment demand and the lack of credible marketing to investors. You know, we've talked about a lot of substantive things here, the relationship between bonds and gold prices, deficits, debt and gold, uh, international politics and stuff. You don't hear 
a lot of substantive discussions in the gold market about what all of this means for investors and why they should be owning gold. It's just not there. There's a, a paucity of credible marketing. And is that leading to less investment than one might expect? Is that the what's happening? I think there's less investment demand than one would expect. What we're finding is what we're calling inertial interest. In, you know, there's an inertial investor interest in gold. We're finding, and we're very busy with a lot of people and institutional investors and family offices and corporations that are interested in gold and studying gold and thinking about investing in gold, but they're not pulling the trigger. And they're not pulling the trigger partly because there aren't a lot of voices giving them credible arguments why they should own gold. There are a lot of voices that give them spurious reasons to own gold. And they say, oh, no, I can't. <laughs> if this is why you buy gold, I'm not going to buy gold. Got it. And as a final question here, and thank you again for your time, Jeffrey, what precious metal are you most bullish on? Depends on your time frame. You know, uh, on a very short-term basis, I'm actually kind of bullish on palladium because it's it's been it really hammered down in the last week or so. It's got issues. You know, you've got a strike with the big three auto companies in the United States reducing short-term demand for palladium. You have substitution away from palladium to platinum in auto catalysts. You have substitution away from gasoline and, and diesel-powered vehicles to electric you have a lot of negatives. You have the ESCOM, the state uh, electricity board in South Africa saying we're getting away from the wintertime load shedding. So the idea of interruptions in the power supply to the platinum industry are now reduced. There are a lot of short-term factors that have pushed the palladium price down, and it could spring back on a short-term basis over the next month or so. From a longer-term basis, it's probably my least interesting precious metal. In, from a longer term basis, I think my, I'm most interested in gold prices because it's not so much an industrial commodity. I do think that we may see a recession in 2024, 2025. We have a plethora of economic and political reasons to increase your gold holdings. And I think that gold prices probably have the best upside potential over the next two years. Silver's right up there in percentage terms. But silver's got some specific things that gold doesn't have that might be headwinds to it, whereas gold is more universally seen as the currency alternative. Fascinating. Jeffrey Christian, managing partner at CPM Group in New York City. Thank you for joining us once again on the Northern Miner podcast. Once again, a big thank you to Jeffrey Christian, managing partner at CPM Group, for his wonderful insights into what is happening in the precious metals market. Insights that come with an entire career in that market. So always great to talk to him. For those that are coming to the Canadian Mining Symposium, do say hi. I'd love to hear from you. Any feedback or anything on the show is totally welcome. And it would just be great to talk and come say hi. So with that, if you want to help out the podcast, please leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory, share it with your friends, and until next week, take care.